Good evening, Ante. We are in the middle of this last week of the semester. How are you? Indeed we are. Indeed we are. This is here at Andrews University exam week, which is obviously bittersweet for all of us. It is bittersweet because we are bringing things to a conclusion. Uh, there's a sense of relief, but also, you know, the last time when you're in a classroom with students, you know, that is the last time you will be with them in that setting with those number of people, with, with, with that setup, I mean. And, you know, in, in the best of circumstances, you build some very nice relationships and you grow closer together. So that's why it's bittersweet for me always. Yeah, uh, bitter because you have, what, what did you say, 90 papers to uh, go through and grade? <laughs> yes, and exams, a lot of exams and papers. Yeah, it's it's interesting, though. It's good. Yeah. It's good. And then uh, there's a dissertation defense uh, coming up. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about uh, what uh, the topic is and um, when it will be. There is a wonderful dissertation defense coming up by one of our students in our department, by Irian. And she wrote a dissertation on the theological interpretation of scripture. And I think that is perhaps one topic that we can pick up in the future just to explain to our audience how does that approach differ from other hermeneutical or interpretive approaches. But she's basically looking at two important thinkers, Ephraim Radner and Richard Hayes, and looking at their understanding specifically of interpretive virtue what does it mean to be a virtuous reader of the Bible? Mm -hmm. And then she tries to analyze their perspective and their contributions through a particular approach from kind of an evangelical feminist approach where she's raising questions about social location, where she's raising questions about what does it mean to be a, a woman, let's say, in Central America and South America to read the Bible. So kind of from this kind of contextual theologist perspective, trying to engage these two important thinkers. So I think it's, it's a wonderful dissertation. There's nothing like a, a paper or a dissertation that is well written where you don't have to struggle with progression of thought and flow mm -hmm. and logic where sentences flow very nicely so it's been really a pleasure to read that dissertation yeah beautiful yeah that you have these different types of uh, doctoral students right or i mean even master students for some you feel like you have to write the thesis for them and others you just need to be on the sideline and cheer right. them up because they are doing a nice race yeah yeah. So that seems to have been uh, one of the latter PhD uh, projects, and they are always a pleasure to yes. uh, supervise. Yeah, especially when it's in a student. You always want to have a student who, uh, you know, they know what they think, they're ready to push back, hold firm on their convictions, but at the same time being teachable and responsive. It yeah. is hard to see students, even colleagues and students in general in life, where people take feedback, even the gentlest and kindest of feedback, they take it personally. I think that is very difficult to be with people as I said, in general, to be around people like that, but also with students. But she has been very open-minded, uh, but also knowing what she wants to say. So that was really a pleasure. Yeah, beautiful. Um, well, looking forward to have the reports in next week, I think, when uh, she has uh, defended her thesis. Um, what else has happened uh, to you in the last week, Ante? Well, it's been really a lot of these uh, things uh, connected with teaching. It's a little bit hands-on-deck kind of situation when we reach this part of the point of the semester. 
Another thing that perhaps this is a good opportunity to mention that we did start with our mini limited fundraising. It's really not a lot of money that we ask for just to cover our basic expenses. We have provided the link to GoFundMe and we already had some people contributing. We are deeply, deeply grateful to that. It's really not just the money, but to see that some people, I mean, you can support us in many different ways. It doesn't have to be money. That's not any measure of whether you like the podcast or not. But those of the listeners who are able to and willing to, uh, it means a lot. It helps us out. So I'm deeply grateful to that. So that's been really on my end. You know, I've been thinking a lot, but this is, I don't want to stir a hornet's nest. I've been very interested of these. Let me just mention it quickly on these hearings that happened on Capitol Hill on anti-Semitism on, on campus, where they invited mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. three presidents from MIT, right, Penn, MIT, and Harvard. And for me, that raised a lot of question, this tension between free speech, what constitutes free speech and what constitutes hate speech, whether all free speech should be allowed on campuses, what is cancellation, free speech becomes a problem when it starts causing violence or causing directly leading to harm. But what does it mean to lead to harm? All of these interesting things that are happening. Of course, it's deeply politicized. It's deeply part of this party politics that's going on in this country. But I found this to be an interesting discussion. And I know that in some other countries, free speech is, I know in Germany, for instance, right, free speech is defined in very different ways. There's no free speech when it comes to glorification of the Nazi past. You just cannot do that in the public yeah. setting. So it's a little bit different. In any case, that was interesting uh, on my end. What about you? What happened on your end this week? Yeah, you know what? Last week, uh, I had a very nice experience at a church in South Bend, an Adventist church. Um, they had an event there where they celebrate the beauty of the Bible. And um, that event took place from Friday till Sunday. So we had Friday evening lectures together with the Sabbath opening celebration. And then obviously Sabbath, a couple of lectures, and then Sunday morning. And it really was about getting exposed again in an expository way to the biblical text. And I gave a couple of lectures and it was it was such a refreshing experience to experience Beautiful. this church, to uh, see the leadership and how they proactively engage the neighborhood and how they're open-minded and really trying to push, so to say, the, the envelope by making the gospel available to not just church members, really, but, but to really the, the neighborhood and address the challenges that they find in the neighborhood. So it has probably been one of my most refreshing church experiences that I've had in the oh, last beautiful. year or so. I didn't know that a church like that actually is in our um, proximity. And my, prayer, my prayers go up uh, for them. And uh, I'm beautiful. deeply uh, inspired by, by the type of work that is being done. Even, uh, you know, some of our graduates are, are involved there and they're doing beautiful work there. So uh, it really makes me sometimes, you know, you can become depressed or a little bit pessimistic about the state of the church or not, not, not just our own community, but in general Christianity. And, and seeing these types of um, oasis, so, so to say, where the word is still uh, getting traction and attention and being celebrated, um, make you hopeful and uh, make you believe that the kingdom still, you know, is growing and finds places where it is received well. Beautiful. So were your presentations more about the Bible or did you actually engage in some interpretive exercise, some exegesis yeah. of texts? Yeah, right. Ex- exactly. So I did the letter. So uh, engage okay. into... Basically, I, I, I told the community 
why I became an, a Christian or why I became an Adventist Christian. Uh, and I, I told them one of my major reasons is because through sermons and camps, Pathfinder camps, youth camps, and so on, I got exposed to the beauty of the biblical text, and it just really opened my mind, and it really, it really grabbed me. Even you know, in one of the previous episodes that we did on the importance of Bible and Bible reading, it even accompanied me during my agnostic uh, times with this beauty. Um, and this power of the text was still a force through my explorations. Um, so I, I told them I, I want to give them a taste of this experience that brought me to the church. And so what, what we did is we read the story of Cain and Abel. And we did a hermeneutical exercise, so to say, on it, saying, Let, let's forget all the images and all the perceptions that we usually bring to this text, and let's read it as it is. And that was just a, a very interesting experience where the beauty of the text, in a very different way than we traditionally read that particular episode, is um, yes, really blessing the heart and, and the mind. Beautiful. Well, thanks for sharing this. I think that need really exists out there. And then I, this is something that we did discuss in our live recording, and I think there might be even a a clamoring for that because a lot of the and we've talked about this as well a lot of the sermons that we hear really misuse the text or just use the text as a prop rather than engaging in some deep interpretive exercise and i think when you offer this to people and connect it to life it's beautiful i mean we are basically repeating what we said in that episode but it really that stayed with me i i have to say as with you that live recording really stayed with me i think it touched it pulled on some deep strings yeah, uh, yeah, within me, and I am really grateful that we had an opportunity to have that conversation. You know, last uh, episode we discussed some of our publications that are coming out or have been published already. Um, your chapter twenty-two, right, of the BRI publication on family, um, has um, has been out there already for a couple of months, I think, right? Yes, I think so. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I, I thought, man, I'm, I'm I'm so much interested, particularly since the title is so attractive um, or thought provoking, namely bringing eschatology and marriage into into one theme. And so, so I was asking you whether you would share that chapter with me, and I was reading it uh, this this morning, and really enjoyed uh, going through uh, your material, your your line of thought, and it really was thought-provoking, right? Because often we don't discuss marriage uh, and Christian theology, as you point out in the first two, two, uh, two pages, really, in the context of eschatology. And I would just love to have a conversation with you on, on that interlinkage um, and help me, you know, to get a better understanding of how you, how you perceive and how you frame the whole endeavor of marriage from an eschatological Christian biblical perspective. Uh, are you up to uh, the conversation? Yeah, I would be. I would be glad to do so. I think this is a topic that is close to my heart in a sense that it addresses really a reason why I find myself being an ethicist. I think we talked about this earlier in one of our earlier episodes, that the best way that I define my discipline and my interest in ethics is by focusing on the Pauline conjunctions that he has in his epistles, the therefores, right? Uh, Saying things about God, therefore I bow my knees, therefore let's do this, therefore let's put off our old self, it is that therefore these direct statements, as Schreiner calls them, this particular type of conjunctions that connect doctrine and existence. So while ethics, as I said before, is good because it addresses some specific moral conundrums and difficult 
questions that we are encountering in society and in the church and in personal lives, our personal lives, what really interests me, it is this connectivity of doctrine to life. Obviously, as a someone who has been trained in systematic theology, I believe that theology, the doctrine is indispensable for Christian discipleship. As a matter of fact, I had, if I can just, uh, as a segue, kind of to introduce our discussion, we had our this is a class that I taught, Christian Theology One, for students who did not have any theological training before they came to the seminary. And as part, one of their assignment was based on a book by Kevin Van Hooser, Doers and Hearers, where he's developing this notion of being a pastor theologian. And we might have talked about that in the past as well. And it was really, for me, wonderful to read these students, most of them who are coming from a non-theological background, wrestling with that question. What does it mean to be a pastor theologian? How doctrine is essential for the formation of worldview, Mm -hmm. for the formation of love for Jesus and worship. How the simplest Lord's Prayer, as we talked before, our Father, you know, already in the first word you're doing theology because you're actually saying that there is a God who exists in heaven who can hear you, who can hear you, who can act. It's impregnated with theology. In other words, uh, so, so what I wanted to say is I think this chapter really comes from this wider pool of conviction that our basic theological claims that we have about Jesus or doctrinal statements have profound implications of how we think about practical life. Let me yeah. just mention something, and I'm totally going on a tangent right now, but uh, this is this is our stumptage. That's how these things are. Uh, I was at AAR. I don't know if we, this was a meeting that we had, that I had attended after we had our recording, and it was by a professor from my alma mater, uh, university, from university, university of Chicago, by the name, his name is Kevin Hector, and he recently published a book, Christianity as a Way of Life, by Yale University Press. And he's doing something very interesting. First of all, he's piggybacking on this whole turn to life, you know, philosophy as a way of life, and all of these books that have, that have come out in recent decades. But what he's doing something very interesting, rather than beginning with some systematic theology, doctrine, abstract sort of things, he looks at Christian practice. He mm-hmm. looks at forgiveness and Lord's Supper and marriage and friendship and all of these ways of life that we already do as Christians. And then out of them, he kind of builds his uh, systematic theology. And the book is a systematic theology. But this connection, I was deeply touched by that because it really, these are my intuitions within which I operate. So I just wanted to mention that this is the backdrop, how I approach this chapter and why, how this chapter animated me to do these kind of reflections. Yeah, for the one who have, haven't read the chapter, um, I, I can only uh, really warmly invite you to read it. Um, you, you make these important connections that perhaps only Adventists could really do, namely this idea of eschatology and ethics, right? But to introduce your stance or your methodological approach really uh, requires an understanding of eschatology, not as another doctrine, right, is, is one of how many doctrines you might have. And we have these fundamental beliefs in our own tradition, 28 fundamental beliefs, and one of them is the end of times so or the end of things, eschatology. But you already make an argument by also quoting here um, Moltmann, of course, uh, that uh, eschatology is, is not just perhaps to put another 
in other words, is not just another doctrine, but it's really the basso continuum or it's really the impregnation right, of all other things. It really is the bloodstream that uh, goes through the entire body of doctrines, so to say. Take it, uh, take it away and, and you only have a corpse. Um, so th th that's kind of the initial setup that, you're, um, that you are staging here in the first two, three pages. And the question that comes up as you do so for, let's say, a reader who is much aware and perhaps committed to high standards when it comes to marriage, ethics, you know, faithfulness, is do we need eschatology? Do, do we need eschatology in order to make a case for marriage faithfulness, uh, for devotion to, to, the, to the other? So as I was reading, I felt like, okay, you have you perhaps you could narrow it down, you have three approaches to the topic of, of marriage. So what, when, when it comes to ethics uh, and disciplines uh, in the context of marriage, you have a philosophical approach where you are, and of course there are many approaches, philosophical approaches, but if you take kind of the general philosophical approaches to marriage, it's very much common sense driven. You, you could say they're ideals, they're principles that are necessary for any worldview in order to allow for a strong relationship to flourish. Faithfulness, for example, trust, truthfulness, that they, they have these um, um, they, they have these requirements or these ingredients to make a, a marriage strong. So that's kind of a philosophical approach. The, uh, the second approach could be a dedicated Christian approach um, where you derive from the doctrines and from the ethical commands that we find in the biblical text your um, your roadmap for how to how to do marriage. And if you bring these two of the philosophical and this more doctrinal perspective and compare them with each other, you hardly find any huge differences, it's, it seems. They, they, they both have the same commitments, uh, at least at, at the core. And then you have this third one that's, that's you're really, that, that you're really bringing out, namely ethics, marriage as inspired by the eschaton. So the kingdom to come, so to say, driving our, our forces, driving our wills, driving our passions to do marriage well. And so as a reader, now the question is, what's the difference in the end? Do we need the eschatological viewpoint to build strong marriages? I'm just curious about how, how you would address this. Now, you're raising an important, thank you for asking this, Oliver, you're raising an important question which grades against the larger issue of morality and what morality is and who has access to morality and whether we can have ethics and morality apart from scripture. And my question is, of course we can. Uh, I think Christians for a very long time have wrestled with this issue of righteous pagans, very often people who are outside of the Christian community and yet live righteous lives. Of course, Christians have tried to interpret this in various forms. Is this a type of natural theology? Is it the law, as Paul writes in Romans, that is written on the heart of unbelievers and they live according to that? Is it that some sort of uh, common values, Christian values, which have been secularized are still percolating in our society, so people are imbuing them without any particular Christian commitment. Now, that could be a separate conversation, but it is an obvious case that morality 
can be can be had and people are moral uh, whether you again ascribe to some natural law ethics i can do not repeat myself so i would certainly describe uh, subscribe to that and so the question then in general before we even come to eschatology and before before we come to marriage like what is it that christianity what is what is what is this adjective christian adding in the term Christian ethics. Like, what mm-hmm. is this adding at all? And some people would be, oh, there's no Christian, outside, there's only ethics. But I would say that in Christian ethics, while perhaps the outworking might be the same, let's say the, the, the way we live, there are a host of different motivational factors that drive us. We, we understand that ethics, that uh, we are dependent on, on God to transform us. We do it in imitation of Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit as a transformative agent. We believe that we are doing these things for the glory of God. And then also in terms of substance, there are some significant differences which depend on the Christian worldview. Yeah, so there might be some overlapping factors, let's say, in terms of honesty, in terms of truth-telling. But on the other hand, let's say a biblical understanding of a human person will lead to very different ethical positions, let's say on end-of-life issues and beginning-of-life issues, than someone who is purely a naturalist. Often in my class, we are talking about the philosopher, one of the most influential philosophers, public philosophers, intellectuals of our days, Peter Singer, who intentionally writes about, directly writes about, against the unsanctifying of human life. Mm -hmm. He completely rejects the paradigm of the sickness of human life, for instance. And so that would be an instance where actual Christian commitments lead to radical, different moral positions. So that's that's one thing. Now, when it comes to eschatology, again, in the Bible, I think the Christian life is polyphonic. There are many different elements, many different perspectives from which we can view the Christian faith. Certainly, if I reflect on the character of God, and I reflect on the compassion of Jesus, and I look at these things, there seems to be more than enough information for me to live a life that is God-honoring, that is leads me to kindness towards others and compassion towards others. But it is, it is again at the same time in the Bible, it is a given, especially, I mean, in the New Testament, that it is the belief in the coming of Christ that at the very least, supplants a different element of urgency, a different level of responsibility. Mm-hmm. You can see this, for instance, in Romans, thir- in Romans 13. The day is almost over, the night is coming, let us therefore, you know, stop with drunkenness and this and that. So obviously we see Paul using the sense of the parousia, the soon coming of Christ or the coming of Christ as an important motivational factor in how we live. So, so that is that is what I would say. And even though all these other things, uh, if you follow Paul, for instance, all these other things matter. Morality matters and kindness matters. And let's say you do, do, being a person of integrity, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, according to Paul, all of these things are useless if there is no resurrection. Right. Why even care about these things? If there is no final um time of accountability and grace and truth, why not just live, drink and eat and do whatever you want? So it seems to me that at least for Paul, that he had a very strong connection between how we ought to live and this idea of the coming of Christ. Yeah, I mean, you you could argue then that a Stoic, for example, would not feel addressed when Paul speaks about what would that all make 
what sense would it make if there would not be a resurrection? Uh, e even Epicurean would, would disagree and say, well, it still makes sense. It still makes sense to live an ethical life, right? Um, but well, I'm not sure that I would agree even with Paul. I don't think that would be my conclusion. I think there are many reasons why we should live um, good lives even apart from that. So it would be good to actually dialogue with Paul on that point. I don't know what you think about it, but, but, but you're right. There are all kinds of motivational factors that we can bring to the table. So yeah, anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, yeah. So could you say that they are, again, trying to look at these three approaches to marriage and faithfulness? Could you say there are three pulls that we could benefit from by taking uh, a more, let's say, general moral perspective, in addition to a dedicated Christian perspective, in addition to a dedicated eschatological perspective. So the the first pull would be a common sense pull, so to say. If, if you want to build a strong relationship, you need to be a faithful partner. You need to have pretty clear, agreeable norms and principles that you commit to without compromising, so to say, both partners. Then that, that's a pull that uh, m most of, of us feel and, and sense regardless of their particular specific worldview that they are committing to. Uh, a pull from the real life, uh, a common sense pull. So the second would be a pull that is driven from this beautiful image of God, the, the God of Israel as a marriage partner of Israel, to see that my marriage is a microcosmos of a, a, a macrocosmos. The dedication of God to his people uh, is um, to be married in my dedication to, to my wife. Just that image, this theology, um, well, you could say this ontology, right? That's the Imago Dei. That itself is a pull that really draws me into me being more committed to, to my wife. And perhaps we can talk a little bit more in practical terms here in, as, as we continue the conversation. And the third one is really a pull that reminds us that this is not just ontology, right? This is also about the great controversy. Or this is also about a big script, a big narration that progresses into the coming of the Christ. And so when you have visitors come, you know, on Sabbath, we often have visitors over at, at our house, then we make sure that the house is cleansed, uh, that, that, that we clean the house, that we make it shiny, that, you know, we, we uh, clear up all, all the mess. Um, and it's not because we feel that we might get rejected by our um, visitors, but we just want to enjoy a good moment of encounter. Um, we don't want to have clutter around. We really want to focus on the beauty of this encounter that uh, we're having with these guests. So these these are the three poles. And whether you are only utilizing one pole and your your marriage is stable, that, that's, that's all fine. But we have the beauty of these three poles that we could be blessed by. And I think you're making an argument particular for this third pull, namely, it's time to get ready for the Lord. It's time to clean up and clear up and reinvest into the marriages we have as a preparation of the guests that we are, um, that we are expecting. Could, could you frame it that way? 
Yes, you beautifully uh, summarized. I mean, this uh, what I would believe myself. Uh, I did not specifically structure it that way in the paper, but that was really at the background, uh, is at the background of my thinking. Uh, I don't think, again, I need to repeat. I think that God, people are arriving at right moral judgments in all kinds of different ways. We said before, I said already myself before in this episode, we do believe in, in common grace. We believe in God's prevenient grace. We believe that God is always at work, mending, healing, bringing together. And there are many things that in, in all domains of life, f- being from nutrition to biology to psychology and sociology, that culture is arriving into all kinds of fantastic insights. And why wouldn't they as well arrive at things like uh, marriage? We can learn a lot of things. So we can learn both from just general philosophical reflection, but we can also learn from social sciences and psychological studies that tell us, you know, they show us that, for instance, strong marriages strongly correlate with the amount of time we are able to sp- uh, spend with our spouses. They can very easily point to how things such as, I don't know, invalidation uh, of other of the partner or escalation or things like that lead to marriage breakdown. We can learn to a lot of these things. These are experiential things. These are scientific things. These are philosophical reasoning things. And insofar as they overlap with the Christian faith, of course, we want to affirm them. And we want to affirm them that people can have wonderful lives, even if they don't know God. They have it in all other domains. Why wouldn't they have it in marriages? I know fantastic marriages of people who are not really believers. And that is just the grace of God that works in different ways. And and I just affirm the, the goodness of God that he's speaking also in these settings. But yes, I mean, it is clear that in the biblical context, there is a the promise uh, of, of eternal life, the promise of the healing of the nations, the fact how Paul himself connects the formation of virtues very much with the soon coming of Christ yeah. as one of the motivational factors. Be sober, be serious. Well, how should you be sober? How should you be serious? Well, you know, you should live in such and such a way, and that has downstream effects in how we then relate to our spouses. So, uh, yes, I think these are different modalities. Each one has its own validity, and I would certainly concur with the way you have structured that. Yeah. The the challenge that I'm seeing sometimes in the way how I hear these conversations in the church when this eschatological pull is being presented is that, let me think about how, how I can phrase that. It is because this eschatological pull can be so strongly presented in some of the ethical discussions that it almost becomes some sort of work salvation, right? You, you true, do true. this Otherwise, you're missing the coming of the Lord, right? Uh, or you're missing out. You will be among the ones that are being rejected. How do you uh, frame the idea of sanctification, the idea of uh, improving, reinvesting into your marriage relationships, being f- uh, faithful, being truthful, from it becoming a requirement for salvation? Hopefully you love your spouse, right? <laughs> Hopefully you want to have a good relationship. And certainly if that would turn into works righteousness, I don't know what kind of a marriage that would, would be. Hopefully we are not having marriages in that sense. I, I hope that that's not how they work. But you're right. I mean, and what you say about marriage applies to all kinds of other things. It's not just marriage, you know, a, a hyper focus on eschatology at the expense of 
other elements of biblical beliefs leads to all kinds of imbalances. And I think we did mention, I don't know if it was in the episode, but I think the two of us discussed the famous saying of, not famous, it's not a famous saying, but a repeated saying of your former colleague Jacques Ducan when he would argue that Daniel is the book for, mm-hmm. for Adventists. It's a true book for Adventists because it has this double aspect to it. It has the apocalyptic aspect and it has the wisdom aspect to it. And he said apocalyptic without wisdom is fanaticism and wisdom without apocalyptic is empty. It is just human wisdom. And I think what he said in that regard could be extrapolated to other Christian practices. Yes, obviously the future orientation isn't just orientation towards the judgment. It is orientation towards celebration and the feast of the Lamb. It is about joy and, and righteousness and truth winning its day and reconciliation taking place. It is really a not simply something to, obviously to be afraid of but something that should be ha, has should have its motivational pull towards also celebration and all of that but again uh, even if that is separated from wisdom from making these uh, affirming the goodness of life affirming the goodness of human relationships here already in this life that everything has to be hyper eschatologized and that never nothing can, and everything becomes evil in this world that also becomes a problem now i know that that's not exactly what you asked but yeah, i would say yeah. in some way analogically in some way in some related way i think we need to keep these balances in a in a healthy relationship also when it comes to salvation i often read to our faith community, right? A text that is important and, you know, often read in in our faith community works by by Ellen White. And I found her writings to be very helpful to me as someone who has, I don't know if I shared this with you, but as someone who has read virtually as part of my doctoral exams, anything of significance in the history of Christian thought, right? And then reading Ellen White, I might have mentioned this in this episode. I, I, she's, she's amazing, uh, just way clearer for me than Luther and, and Calvin even on these issues of sanctification. And mm-hmm, yet on the one mm-hmm. sense, she says, even the desire to desire God uh, even the desire to desire God comes from God. A pure yeah. prevenient grace. Right, pure prevenient grace. And on the other hand comes the statement within the same chapter where she writes, for instance, that everything about our salvation, like everything about our salvation depends on our course of action. So you have this very interesting tensions, very interesting dialectic. On the one hand, everything is given by God and everything. And on the other hand, there's a large element of responsibility. And I would say there's a lot of dialectics also when we think about marriage. On the one hand, it is rooted in creation. It is God's ideal for our lives right now but obviously when paul writes about certainly those ways actions that infringe upon marriage or damage marriage or are detrimental or harm the other spouse that the language of judgment is coming up as it should because the language of judgment is the language of truth and accountability. Someone will have to give an account for these kind of actions. It is the language of responsibility. So I do believe that we are moving in these different elements, different poles, different tensions. And I think yeah. they sh- different elements have to be emphasized at different times. I don't know I, I, I don't know if I'm clear at all, but I wanted to say, mm-hmm. just affirm these different elements to this discussion. Yeah, you know, for me, how, how I make sense out of it or how I uh, balance things out is 
by connecting it to our previous conversation, you know, about productivity and passion. So for me, I mean, like you said, you know, obviously you're trying to invest into your marriage relationship because you love your spouse and and not because you feel like marriage is a tool by which you can earn your salvation. So um, the and, and for me, this is kind of the driving force. If you're passionate about something, if you're passionate about the new kingdom, if you're passionate about the just world, if you're passionate about love and and about companionship, about fidelity and about truthfulness, well, then sanctification is not a mean by which you achieve anything. Sanctification is the celebration of that very passion. So sanctification, you, you don't lose when you invest in sanctification. You can only win. So when, when you're investing in sanctification, it's basically nothing else that, than the embodiment of the passion that, that you feel being pulled by. And so for me, the eschaton is not a threat, but it is just the reality that welcomes all of my passions and my, my, my actions that are driven by that passion, saying this, we need more of this because this is what the new kingdom will be about or is about, you know, when we uh, think about the kingdom being among us already. So for me, the, uh, the ethical pull that you're presenting here, the eschatological pull is really disconnected. Uh, that's, that's how I like to frame it, disconnected from any salvific aspect. The salvific aspect is just on the sidelines as you are welcoming and as you're working uh, on the kingdom uh, to come out of passion. You, you, you're not afraid of losing it. You, you, it's, not, uh, it's not an engagement in getting a ticket, right? You, you do this regardless whether you would get the ticket or not. But the fact that the eschaton is coming tells you that all your efforts are part of a grand narrative, a grand narration um, in which the forces of your marriage and my marriage and the marriages of all our dear ones are all contributing to the coming of the of the kingdom. So th th this is kind of how, yes. how yes, it makes sense see, to me. Yes, I, and I think the whole thing can be restated in a different way while honoring the intuition of, of your comments right here. And here's the thing. Nothing is more un-Adventist, for instance, than asking the question, do I have to be a vegetarian in order to be saved? Or do I have to do evangelism in order to be saved? It is absolutely un-Adventist because it operates on a very reductive understanding of what salvation is. Salvation is getting into heaven. I think the greatest contribution for me when I became an Adventist was precisely this holistic understanding of salvation. Salvation is not about just getting into heaven. It is about healing. It is about wholeness. Mm -hmm. It is about joy and celebration. It is about a good life. It is about all of that. So in, th in this instance, is, is um, good eating or healthy eating essential for salvation? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. You cannot be saved unless you eat well. Mm -hmm. But you see, it if is you salvation. Think, yeah, exactly. If you think about salvation, oh, are you saying I won't get into heaven? And, no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying about God's pr purposes that God has for your life to bring about the greatest amount of wholeness and completeness that is possible in your body, in your life circumstances. God is about mending and healing and, and breaching these fractures within us and in our body and our psyche and relationships. It's always about serendipity and providence and grace and healing and celebration. That's what it is. And in that sense, of course, marriage is a matter of salvation because uh, presumably having 
really, uh, and some of us had moments like these, and some of us had tragic relationships that ended not didn't end up well. And even those of us who are in marriages and had moments of conflict, we know that that does not feel well. It's not great. It doesn't do your psyche does not feel excellent uh, as a result of this conflict. And God wants to mend this, if possible, wants to bring healing, wants to bring relationship, and all of that is part of salvation. Now, what the Bible is teaching us is that all of these experiences of healing and renewal are in many ways anticipations of the coming kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. There's a beautiful term that theologians sometimes use, and it is the term proleptic, meaning in advance. You, know, mm -hmm. you participate something in advance. So that is why my former professor would say that ethics in the Christian life is a proleptic participation in the coming kingdom of God. If everything is connected, everything that is good and beautiful and just is connected to God, and in all of that is going to receive its ultimate validation and celebration in the coming kingdom of God, then any experience of togetherness and wholeness and healing and joy is in some way a participation in the yeah. coming kingdom of God. So that is another way in which rather than seeing the kingdom or the, or the coming of Christ as a, uh, you know, simply in terms of judgment, no, 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 no. Every time you experience goodness in life, you are already participating and celebrating what God is going to bring about. So it is eschatological. Mm -hmm, Each joy, mm -hmm, every mm -hmm, experience of joy, mm -hmm. whether people know it or not, mm -hmm. is aiming at eschatology, at, yeah. at, the, at the wedding feast of the Lamb in some very significant ways. You know, another term that, that has been helpful really uh, in, in my conceptualizations of things is anti-rights term of vocation. Um, yeah. You know, where, where he says living the life of sanctification is a Christian vocation. It's, it's not a mean to get somewhere. It's actually your task. It's actually your vocation to bring the goodness of the God who is coming into the here and now, to announce the coming, right, in the, in the here and now. This is your task. Your task is to restore the image of God in, in the here and now. And I think it's a beautiful description of that as you are committing your life to Christ through baptism, you actually are part of a new workforce. Yeah. You um, you have signed up for a vocation that really brings the image of God. In, in a sense, that's what Jesus does, right? He, he restores the image of the Father, the Father image, to a world that is afraid of the divine Father. Yeah. Uh, in, But in even the, the task yeah. for some people, Oliver, don't you think that for some people at least, even the word task can conjure up some images of drudgery and, yeah, and yeah. boredom? I think for me, a good image, uh, if you were to connect it to this image of task, I really did the two parables in the Gospels, let's say of the person who found uh, the pearl of great price, and he found it, or the person who found the, the treasures in the field. Mm-hmm. And I mean, these guys, they can't believe their luck. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> it, yeah. It, it, these are not perils of sacrifice. Oh, now I have to soil everything I have so I can buy this. No, these guys are getting a deal. 
right? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> and they cannot believe it, right? And I think that that is what needs to be sanctification. Isn't simply vocation. You you just can't believe the luck you have been given when you realize what God wants to do with your life. Sanctification isn't just a command. It is the greatest gift and joy that He is giving you. Because finally, think about it. Let's say, okay, how does sanctification look like? Well, think about the Sermon on the Mount. Right? It is the person who doesn't have any need to condemn other people anymore, who doesn't have to be anxious, who doesn't have to lust and doesn't have to be angry and doesn't have to, you know, it can forgive and everything. I mean, that is an account of profound freedom uh, that is, comes as a result of being transformed in terms of these kingdom values. You, you have a mm-hmm, power mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that most people don't have. And I think when we think about, therefore, uh, again, eschatology, when we, think about, uh, you know, when we think about sanctification, we need to think about these things not simply as commands and even simply as tasks, but invitations to an unbelievable existence, yeah, to an yeah, amazing yeah. gift. I think that is a simple ABC of the gospel. But I can tell right. you from my pastoral experience, many people miss that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I I don't like the word task actually or duty, but vocation to me is really the the yeah. term that brings it together because it it gives me the sense of that I can now walk upright, right? That I can now walk the true, streets true. like a prince. That I have actually a high task. That uh, in 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 the sense of you know I'm called, I'm called into something higher in, into, in, yeah, the, the, to me, the term vocation, I think that that's uh, uh, the, the term that N.T. Wright likes to define and use in his uh, way of approaching. It's a good matters. Lutheran term as well. I know that Martin Luther enjoyed that very yeah. much. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, even if you think about um, what's the um, the great sociologist, Max Weber, you know, when, when he has this, uh, his uh, inaugural speech at the University of Munich, uh, science as a vocation, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the term is really uplifting. It's, it's really, uh, n- now, now you have a meaning in your life. Now you have a, a way to walk upright uh, with honor, with, uh, with credibility, with, anyway. Um, so, an- another topic that uh, came up while reading through your chapter had to do with the notion of romance and it connects a little bit with the way how we have talked i'm here now on page um if you have by any chance a chapter in front of you it's page 594 594 we're speaking about the two axes of this god and his people type of relationship as a as an analogy to the spouse relationship uh, that w- we're having, you're starting this with the um, yeah with the two paragraphs before when you speak about the God and His people present us with an archetypical vision of marital unity and love. Right, you have the deliverance language, the wedding feast of the lamb, and you're going to some more beautiful details. Um, but then you bring up these two axes by which one could define right this relationship, this marriage relationship between God and His people. And the first axis is I'm I'm just reading here: the people of God have abandoned their redeemer for the sake of other gods. And the action, uh, the, the so this is a rejection of fidelity. So one of the axes is fidelity, right? Fidelity, and then the antithesis of that axis would be infidelity. Um, and then you have the second axis, and it says, and with it they have failed to worship Him in truth and spirit, 
And that's how you in bracket define as rejection of intimacy. So the, the question that I had when I looked at these two X's, and there's nothing I disagree about it, but I feel like there's something missing, but perhaps there's something missing by by intent. And that's the whole notion of romanticism. Because when you have like rejection of intimacy, uh, what, what does that, uh, you're basically summarizing, namely the fail to worship in a truth and spirit. Truth and spirit is intimacy, right? And I, I would, I, I can understand why you could term this intimacy, but it's it's a not very romantic, perhaps, um, uh, notion of intimacy, at least in popular terms, not. So I, I, I was just wondering whether you can elaborate a little bit on this and whether romanticism is a term that actually that actually has a place in this description of the man-woman relationship. I think I didn't. Uh, I didn't make this. Uh, I think for me, intimacy was simply for me includes the idea of of romance and this connection. Uh, I think that for me, these two axes that I have here, right? One concerns the covenant promises that we make to one another and uh, you know he will leave his mother and his father and all of that mm -hmm. and so is this idea of, of fidelity fidelity everything yeah. is included with that and then also uh, i mean when i talked intimacy i i have this just two broad categories and they are meant to be encompassing so obviously when by intimacy i mean romance you know sexual unity sexual intimacy i mean uh, the meeting of the minds you know and i, I didn't i know some other people for instance the the famous uh, sternberg's triangular theory of love when he talks about this kind of triangle right you have you have intimacy and you have passion and you have commitment and so intimacy would be this deep friendship and passion would be this infatuation or kind of romantic love would be both this well, would have the passion element and also the intimacy, the meeting of the soul and the heart. So when I talk about intimacy, I, I think what I had in mind, I'm combining what he means by intimacy and passion and then com commitment, what he calls commitment, I refer to as fidelity. And mm -hmm. obviously what he wants to uh, talk about, like if you go through these different typologies, right, let's say liking of friendship is like only intimacy or infatuation is only passion, like empty love, like there's, there's, yeah. there's, it's only commitment, right? Yeah. yeah. Romantic love has intimacy and passion, companion love has intimacy and commitment, but no mm -hmm. passion. And his mm -hmm. whole ideal is that the true love, true love has true or consummate love, as he calls it, has intimacy passion and commitment. I think it's a very helpful, actually, theory. I often used it in marital and premarital counseling, and I used it as a very, it was a very good tool to happen. And you can think about when marriages fall, start falling by the waysides, usually one of those things or more of those things begin to diminish. So yeah, yeah. To, to briefly answer, for me, I with my language of intimacy, I meant to capture both what Sternberg calls Intimacy, intimacy and passion and then romantic love for me would be I guess a combination of intimacy and passion and that yeah. was in my mind I did not really develop it here at length yeah yeah I mean the interesting thing for me let's say from a more now a developmental uh, perspective is that these this triangle and the definition of each of these three poles so to say is also 
changing in the course of a relationship, right? Mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. what passion means or what romance means definitely uh, yes, yes, yes. Ac actually changes. So yes, yes. Um, I, I must say, if if I reflect my own marriage, I would say in the beginning. Uh, obviously, I, mean, I, I think that's true for most marriages, right? There, there's a lot of projection taking place. There's a lot of illusions or dreams um, that motivate you to start a relationship with with a spouse. While uh, for sure, fidelity is is also a, b a big thing that you um, devote yourself to. But but there's still a, a lot of dreaming and projections and and illusions that start this relationship and as you continue that relationship these things fall apart in 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 a sense De definitely your illusions and your projections because you will see that the partner that you have committed yourself to is not the partner that you thought you committed uh, to and so this fidelity aspect then really if you stay f if you stay faithful it really forces you after the disillusionment, so, so to say, to redefine why you're still not just not not just carrying out your duty of faithfulness, but you have the call to redefine passion and romance because you cannot give that aspect up. Uh, if if you give that up, your your marriage is at high risk. So you need to redefine what now romance and uh, and passion is. How how did that go with your marriage? Do you see kind of the, this moment where this tipping point where where disillusionment kind of achieved its rock bottom and and now you you have to now you have the now you have the responsibility to if you want to be uh, if if you want to carry out the the duty of fidelity let, let, let's say the call to fidelity that you have to redefine what you actually uh, experience or expect from romance yeah, and passion yeah. i think it's it's really essential uh, especially given the fact that these marriages either have profound dips or reach certain plateaus. And people have studied these things. Very often it happens in your second or third year of a marriage, and then after 10 years of marriage or so, yeah. give and right. take. And actually, a lot of divorces are happening precisely around that time. And why are they happening? Well, they for many reasons, right? It can be neglect, sure. abuse. I'm not, I'm not now... What I'm saying does not apply to every single instance, but it certainly is the fact that these marriages, most of our marriages, they really experience this uh, profound dip. But many people have shown, studies have shown, right, that a lot of these marriages that used to be very unhappy, if people manage to stay together... Right, it is usually when they reach. This might not be. I think twenty years is about it, twenty right? years, right? Yeah. People marriages really start to improve, and you begin to ask yourself a question: Well, why is this happening? Why? Why is this? Well, because these dips, these crises. I'm not saying in all instances there are all kinds of things that people are facing, but at least in some, in many instances, it is really an invitation for us to. To, to change ourselves. We, we need to change. We need to be uh, recast our expectations, the marriage, uh, whatever needs to happen. And I think it's very important. So fidelity is that, I don't know how to rightly call it, but it is that sort of commitment that enables me to go through these profound dips that all of us are experiencing in marriages, or most of us, or many of us are experiencing in our marriages. So I think that, yes, and I hopefully at the, at the end of these things, right, a reconfiguration will take place, both what intimacy is right. and what passion is, and 
and maybe just can i've seen this so so many times they can deteriorate slow deteriorate and they come to a point where you cannot see any hope anymore and then i've seen but the possibility of renewal and restoration is absolutely immense Mm -hmm, and can mm -hmm. take place very quickly actually surprisingly just changing the way you talk to the other being positive rather than negative validate rather than invalidate and it's amazing how things can change very often and that is why i believe in counseling because counseling a good counselor will be able to put these point out these things and help us to to process these in any case so yes i think fidelity is important precisely because of these dips that we are experiencing and and these dips as you point out are huge chances i mean if if you're able to hold on and endure you you will i mean there's a high chance that you will find your second love right with with your first wife so 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 to say um what what helped me a lot and i think you speak about this also you touch on on this when you are um having that uh subsection narratives of hope i think what always helped me and Karen to endure and to go on is that we could connect to a bigger narrative that's bigger than ourselves uh, and see how Jesus or how, how the God of Old and New Testament goes through his own disillusionments, right, and, and sticks and holds on and moves on. And that really, you could say, for us, probably something that happens after 10 years of marriage or so, I think that's probably true. I mean, you, you're mentioning that uh, as well, right? right? Two, three years after you've uh, gotten married and then about uh, after 10 years, it's often where people also get in their midlife crisis, that when you achieve that or when you arrive at this dis- disillusionment, illusionment, you, you could get you need an inspiration right and that's where i think the the second pull and the third pull the eschatological pull or perhaps the um you know the christian dedicated uh, pull really can bestow its blessings mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. upon you and you realize that the other is not just connecting again kind of to uh, hartmut rosa's uh, concept is not not just somebody you want to get something out of right but that you see a huge blessing in the resonance with the other and see how can i help the other to flourish and in that helping the other to flourish or in christ's you know investment in his incarnation we have here christmas coming coming soon at that moment where you incarnate yourself so to say into that relationship there's such a beauty and a different caliber of romance and passion um, being bestowed on you and on the relationship as you, you know, receive so much joy and energy by, by just seeing the other flourish and by just investing into the, the good and the well of the other. You have this you have this mentioned in in a section where you say right the final yeah, I have it here on page five nine four where you say the final result of this God man relationship is redemption, right? The final att- to finally attain salvation. And of course we are not going to save our partners, but it's a very nice analogy because that's something that you can experience in your marriage relationship too where you feel like i want to save my spouse i want to redeem my spouse not in a salvific not you know not in a spiritual sense but i want to save her into her good life i want to um, redeem her into the best that she can be and and there's such a beauty in it 
Yeah, definitely. And I think this might be a good way for us even to, to kind of wrap it up. And because there is actually, in we discussed mostly the, the first part of the article and the second one that you touched upon, which I really feel very strongly connected to, is this section uh, that's uh, titled Narratives of Hope, yeah. Character and Storytelling in Marriages. And this might be a good introduction to a theme that we want to pick up in our future episodes how very much the stories we tell about ourselves and others structure our identity and structure our relationships so i would like to come back to that because i think that is absolutely essential and part of that renewal that you're talking about very much is is a decision to begin crafting alternative stories, mm -hmm. stories of what the other can become and what I can become and what our marriage can become. So a lot of prospective thinking that is taking place, which is a narrative form of uh, consciousness, a narrative form of, of, of cognition. And this is something I want to come uh, back to because I think that the Bible often is teaching us to start uh, telling alternative stories. You know, when Paul is telling us to give thanks, when, you know, Jesus is, you know, telling us not to be anxious about tomorrow. If you're constantly being encouraged to tell different types of stories about selves and others. And I think that is essential for any marriage relationship. But that is something we will come back. And I hope to be able to unpack this a bit more when we come to that topic. Lovely, lovely. Thank you, Ante, for this view into the future. Um, I think we can all invite everybody, particularly in the season where Christmas is around the corner, that uh, you should be blessed by the eschatological pull, right? Uh, expose yourself to to the coming of the Christ, uh, particularly in this season. And uh, we wish you that you have a blessed Christmas and that it will allow you to get a sense of this dedication of God to humanity. And might it inspire you also in your dedication to the relationships you find yourself in. Oh, wonderful. I, I can only concur with that. And I wish you the same, Oliver, the same wishes may be true in your life. And looking forward to talking to you soon.